Karim Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit NurHuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel and growth. Don't forget to visit CoffeeWithKareem.com to see the latest news and updates about this podcast. Please generously donate and help sponsor this show to keep on going at Patreon.com slash CoffeeWithKareem. That's Patreon.com slash CoffeeWithKareem. Welcome to another show of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have an esteemed guest, Daniel Hakikachu, also known as the Muslim Skeptic. Daniel, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So I I uh, remember seeing your uh, your blog, you know, a few years back, and it really struck me. I'm like, the Muslim Skeptic, what's this about? And and at first I thought, you know, is this guy a skeptic towards Islam? Is he skeptical about being Muslim? What exactly? And then I started to, you know, see your topics, the things that you explore, and, and mashallah, there's a lot of rich, uh, tense topics like, you know, philosophy and, and science and atheism, uh, down to feminism and liberalism and, and sociopolitical um, movements. And uh, it sounds like, you know, you're you're kind of taking this position of we have to really be um, ob- more objective uh, when it comes to these ideas and philosophies and objective, more importantly, through uh, an Islamic lens. And I and I kind of get the sense that you get this um, concern or worry that, uh, you know, what you're seeing around you as far as, you know, um, American Muslim communities and the way they participate or validate certain ideas or philosophies is uh, quite concerning for you. Would you say that's true, number one? And number two, tell us more about why you chose uh, the title, The Muslim Skeptic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm definitely concerned about a lot of the intellectual, social, and cultural trends um, that I'm seeing uh, in the world at large, and then also specifically with the Muslim community. And so I wanted to be able to address some of these intellectual trends. And so I started writing online, and that became a blog and a Facebook page and so forth. So, so that's that was my response. And then as far as what the Muslim skeptic, what that idea means is uh, there's this great quote about modernity and the modern kind of secular, more atheistic world. And it's that the modern world, uh, its defining characteristic is that it's just as dogmatic as any religion or belief system, but it's just oblivious to that dogmatism, right? And so when you have dogmatism, there needs to be um, some uh, way to critique ideas and to question and we don't see that kind of questioning and critique aimed at some of the modernistic ideologies that are dominant today. Rather, they're just presumed to be rational and scientific and above critique. But when, if we actually do critique and um, dissect and deconstruct some of these ideas, we find that they're not as solid intellectually and rationally as people tend to assume. So, you know, another way to look at it is just like um, skeptics and critics, atheists um, will try to undermine Islam 
or will try to question religious belief, well, how about we turn the tables? How about we uh, analyze at that same level of um, skepticism some of the modern ideologies, which are even more do dogmatic in certain ways than even religion? That's very interesting. Um, so, you know, for those of us listening, dogma or dogmatism is not a philosophy that has to do with dogs, the animal. Um, th this this has a different um, definition. Um, di how would you define dogma? Sure. Someone is dogmatic when they um, blindly hold on to uh, certain beliefs and are not willing to consider other possibilities. And so it's it's an irrational uh, mindset um, to have with regards to one's own beliefs. And Muslims, especially conservative, you know, quote unquote, conservative Muslims are um, accused of being dogmatic, being blind followers. But when we actually look at the Islamic tradition and, and we actually look at the Quran itself, um, we find that, no, we're as Muslims, we should grasp uh, the uh, central core of Islamic belief with, um, you know, with the light of reason, with the light of rationality. We accept things based on evidence. When we look at the Islamic tradition itself, it's a very rational, um, systematic, analytic tradition. Um, and so this idea that faith and reason are opposed or contradictory, that's not what we find in Islam at all. Um, even going, you know, even when we look at the Quran and when we look at how Islamic scholars throughout the centuries understood what Islamic belief is. Yes, we have to hold on to uh, the central tenets of Aqidah, of our faith, um, but there's also very good reasons um, that we hold on to those beliefs. Um, very rationalistic, uh, it's a very rationalistic approach. Um, to belief that Islam um, puts forth. Right, I got it. Now, that's interesting. So if dogma is this kind of limited mentality or um, psychology that certain beliefs or constructs about reality uh, is absolutely true, and I'm not willing to budge on that, I'm not willing to be open or flexible, that's, you know, dogma. And that's considered a negative thing for the most part, right? But from the some of the writings that you mention. Um, it sounds like it's also possible to be a dogmatic liberal, which is kind of funny because liberalism is this idea of, you know, at least in my understanding, to be more open to philosophical constructs and, you know, cultural relativity and moral relativity. I mean, these are usually branches of, of the idea of liberalism. So, number one, I, I would love to hear you talk more about that. Can you be a dogmatic liberal? Why or why not? And number two... Okay, so let's say Islam, um, you know, I agree with you, the Islamic tradition does emphasize reasoning and, and intellect uh, as part of the process of faith. It's not really about leaps of faith and, and just kind of um, denying your own reasoning skills because, you know, most religions, including Islam, believe that reasoning is one of the gifts that the divine gave humanity. But then, you know, some people, when you get to now thinking about you know, do I really believe in the devil? Do I really believe in angels? Do I really believe in a hereafter and all this stuff? I mean, 
how could you still be reasonable and believe in some of those ideas which m much of the modern world considers you know fairy tales um, and still be a reasonable believer so to speak so so the first question was can you be a dogmatic liberal and the second one is um, how can you maintain uh, the claim of reason and intellect when you do believe in unseen facets of, of uh, religions, which many modern people would consider ridiculous? Well, uh, to address the first question, yes, absolutely. Um, liberalism at its core is dogmatic. Uh, we can see this when we look at the history of liberalism, as well as when we look at uh, some of the ideas. Uh, so one thing to clarify is that when we talk about liberalism, when I talk about liberalism, I'm talking about philosophical okay. liberalism, not political liber liberalism. So um, there's a difference there. So philosophical liberalism um, is coming from the uh, um, philosophical ideas of John Locke, um, uh, J.S. Uh, John Stuart Mill. Um, you have uh, other thinkers that originate in Britain and France um, around the 17th. 18th century, um, who are, are talking about this idea of liberty and freedom and equality. And so they're proposing that really the way to understand morality and what human beings should pursue and the way that government should dictate how people live their lives is by maximizing liberty. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is the central idea of philosophical liberalism, that morality is based on maximizing liberty. And so this idea is shared uh, pretty much by um, all moral philosophers uh, in the Anglo-European American tradition uh, moving into the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. And what people don't understand is that uh, philosophical liberalism is big enough so that it encompasses um, things like communism, um, Marxism, uh, fascism, um, capitalism, uh, libertarianism. Like these are all subsets of this wider uh, philosophical liberalism. Why? Because all of these, um, they, there are definitely differences between all of these political and economic ideologies, but they are all take it for granted that maximizing liberty is the name of the game, right? We need, you know, communists also want to maximize people's freedom and increase equality. They just disagree with, for example, libertarians on how best to do that. So it's, it's a difference in how to achieve that end. So philosophical liberalism is actually this, this huge tradition, Western tradition, and it's something that takes a lot of things for granted. It takes a lot of assumptions for granted. One being, okay, well, what is liberty itself? Yeah. Right. And that's something that people don't often stop to think about. You know, how do we define uh, what makes a person more or less free? Um, and then when you get into the details of what different philosophers wrote about that, you realize that it's, it's a lot of claims. It's a lot of claims about, humanity's essential nature, um, you know, human rights and what human inherent human interests are. And those are at their core dogmatic because they're just based on what, you know, certain 18th century 
philosopher just assumes to be the case and says it's self-evident, right? And, and claims that these views are self-evident. Um, so yeah, you do find a lot of dogmatism in, in the philosophy of liberalism. And then also in the attitudes today, like political attitudes, the way that a lot of liberals um, approach certain discussions, you find them very aggressive and not willing to entertain alternatives. Um, and, and that can go on in issues of like women's rights, um, democracy, and can there be alternatives to democratic systems and so forth and so on. So um, we'll, I'll just leave it there and have you respond to that. No, thanks a lot. That makes a lot of sense. So what I understood was liberalism is a philosophy based on maximizing liberty and liberty is the freedom of, of the human being. And this can be achieved or um, set out to, to uh, attain and with different methods like Marxism or capitalism or liber uh, being a libertarian. These are all different ways to kind of make more liberty exist in the human experience. Um, and what's also interesting about this idea is, as you said, it also makes a lot of assumptions about the human condition, um, what, uh, you know, liberty means, what happiness means, what health means, what, what a lot of things mean. And of course, um, this is going to influence politics, science, and as someone who's in the field of, of, of psychology and human sciences, I know, you know, firsthand that um, the models or the assumptions about what is considered healthy or unhealthy, um, what are mental disorders or not disorders, that's also being defined by this philosophy in politics, although they, I think at times it's, it uh, appears to be, you know, scientific, or that's, that's the way it's kind of prompt up to be. But the reality is, you know, when you look deeply into a lot of these constructs, um, it's also assuming uh, a lot of things about the human condition. So it is actually, in a way, a religious worldview when you think about it, right? Because it's giving you meaning about the human condition, its purpose, and, and what makes it happy and what doesn't and what's healthy and what's unhealthy. Would you say that's a accurate uh, summary of, of what you share? Right. I, w I would say it's definitely a, a metaphysical worldview, um, meaning it's uh, – you said it's a religious worldview. They would dispute that. Uh, liberals would dispute that they're propounding religion. But we can still say that it's metaphysical in the sense that, okay, this is based on uh, your beliefs about something that's not necessarily physical. Like what is a human being? Um, what counts as a human being? Um, what are essential human interests? Like what, what's good? What I mean by that is like, okay, what is good for a human being? Um, th this is uh, something that you can understand like in terms of, well, does a human being benefit from having unfettered access to casual sex? Um, is that something that's good for a human being or um, bad? For Depends on your therapist. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. So those are like, does making a clean break from your parents, you know, if your parents upset you and are causing you some kind of uh, trauma or, or psychological issue, is it best to just cut them off um, or, you know, is something another path uh, better? Like you have different different religions and philosophies will give you different answers to that, depending on which what you accept. And it all goes back to this question of, okay, well, what is essentially in the interest of a human being? 
Right. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it seems like all these discussions and, and discourses, it, it comes down for me, the essence is we're always trying to find out what is truth, what is good and what is beautiful. You know, those are really the, the pursuits of a lot of civilizations and, and cultures um, throughout history in, in my perspective. And um, really, it's just basically claims on what is the truth about reality and certainly the human condition. And this happens to be a worldview, just like you have other worldviews, whether it's Islam or, or atheism or, or scientism or anything else. So everybody's basically coming to the table and going, this is what it is. And what's happening, though, is sometimes certain groups who, let's say, have more influence or finance or, or political power, um, of course, you know, the uh, tip of the power structure, you know, the the top of the pyramid, they're usually the ones that are going to funnel down whatever they deem to be reality. And do you think that's happening to some degree in, 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 in some societies and certainly in the United States where we both reside? Yeah, absolutely. I think that just by virtue of being in um, Western society, whether that's the U.S. or the U.K. or Europe generally, um, you definitely have have these institutions of power. Um, you have the university system is a major one. Um, you definitely have national politics and the kinds of um, laws that are passed, um, so legal institutions. All of these condition um, citizens or uh, people who reside in those countries to think a certain way and to understand the world in a certain way. Um, and so even like you have Muslims who are going through grade school and grade school, uh, you know, public schools in the U.S. have a certain curriculum. Um, they teach certain things and, and that material is based on um, this overarching worldview um, that's informed by liberalism. It's informed by empiricism, scientism and all, all these other ideologies that in no uncertain terms are opposed uh, to a religious worldview and definitely an Islamic worldview. So you can have a Muslim child go through grade school and then be influenced, you know, either explicitly or implicitly and, and conditioned into seeing the world uh, in that kind of, uh, through that kind of lens. And so it's no surprise that so many Muslims who um, youngsters in the U.S. have uh, trouble finding Islam as a coherent worldview, find Islam to not be very compelling or relevant. Well, of course, you know, you've been uh, steeped in this, uh, this goop um, it, just by virtue of going to school and being in society, watching TV, being influenced by media, that all these ideas are kind of influencing uh, the mind uh, in very subtle but powerful ways. So we're all subject to it, um, and we're all influenced by it, and it's just a matter of recognizing that influence so that we can, again, question it, critique it, deconstruct it, and ideally come out with a, a clearer uh, perception that we can then use to get a deeper appreciation and understanding of Islam. Got it. Well, okay, but someone might go to your blog and go, well, Daniel, you went to Harvard and Tufts and studied philosophy and physics and, and whatnot. I mean, you went through the system. 
you know, how come um, you came out with all these ideas or, or beliefs uh, and how come uh, other people could go through the same institutions and, and be uh, in a more um, disconnected place from, from the tradition or value? Why do you think uh, you think the way you do today, even though you went through top-notch schools in the West? Well, that's, um, that's true. Like, uh, it's definitely had an influence on me, but early on, I realized what, you know, what the game was and what was happening because I would read things, um, you know, just through, I, I would, you know, go to religious classes. I'd go, uh, sit with, um, scholars, uh, that were in that area as a college student. And I would be exposed to certain texts, uh, classical texts, and I would read things that just offended me, um, and seemed very foreign and very strange. And I would think, you know, how can these are Muslim texts, yeah, Muslim, right? Islamic, Muslim texts, yeah, Islamic texts. Okay. And you know, even hadith, right? Hadith or verses of Quran. And okay, well, this sounds so strange and so offensive, even immoral. Like, how could anyone uh, see the world like this or think that this is right? And so I had that kind of uh, confrontation. It wasn't, you know, alhamdulillah, didn't reach a crisis point. But it made me pause and reflect, okay, well, why? How could, uh, you know, for 1,400 years, people, uh, Muslims, believe in this? And then, I, you know, thinking about it very rationally, well, is it more likely that 1,400 years of Muslims uh, were wrong about this or were just systematically deluded? Or is it more likely that myself in this particular cultural context have been influenced and conditioned so that I am the one who's seeing this stuff as strange. So maybe I'm the one who's mistaken. Maybe I'm the one who um, is being misled uh, into holding these kinds of immoral views or incorrect views. And, um, you know, when I made that realization, that was just a matter of, okay, well, let's investigate why, like how, you know, how could I have been conditioned in this way? What is influencing that? And so originally I was studying physics um, at Harvard and I started studying more philosophy because I want to understand, okay, well, what's, what are the roots of these ideas um, that are being taught in grade school that are being, you know, pushed in mainstream media and so forth? Let me go investigate that. And so that drove drove my interest in philosophy and you know I, I ended up completing a degree in, in both physics and another major in philosophy and then I did a master's degree in philosophy as well and my re, you know the result of all that investigation and it's a continuing process because I continue to do research is that yeah there's you can trace exactly where these ideas come from you can trace exactly why a typical average American or European finds Islam offensive or incorrect in this way and that way and this way and that way. Well, it's because you've been influenced and conditioned by this particular philosophy. And this particular philosophy, when you actually investigate it, instead of taking it for granted, is full of holes. It's full of problems. It's full of uh, contradictions. Can, can you give us an example? Can you give us an example, like a concrete one, where you kind of went through this very process that you're describing and how you had that awakening? Um, so, for example, um, we talked about 
sexuality, right? Um, so um, if you look at sex, the, the idea of sexual autonomy, right, there's this idea where, um, or, or let's start from, start from the other side. Um, when some uh, Muslims, young Muslims who aren't really educated about Islam learn that, for example, zina, um, adultery, um, um, results in uh, or has the had has the punishment in Islamic law of lashing um, or stoning. Okay, that's something that comes across as brutal, barbaric, uh, barbaric, yeah. <laughs> brutal, exactly, savage. And so it's it causes for a lot of people a crisis of faith um, when they find out something like this because what we've been told and uh, in in the modern world is that look sex is something that people do all the time and they should be able to choose their partners freely as long as it's consensual what harm is there it's a victimless crime um, this is you know the idea that we are. Uh, grow up with and we're told over and over and over again. So if you have that idea of sexual autonomy, then of course something like stoning is going to come across as barbaric. Because from one perspective or from this particular perspective, it's not even the government's business to regulate or society's business to regulate or have a say in uh, a person's sex life and and how they want to have sex if it's before marriage or maybe they're married and they want to cheat you know that's perfectly up to a person's individual conscience and we might disagree um, and we might say it's immoral but how dare the how dare we think that the government or social forces at large could intervene in that choice and so that's the that's the ment that's the process uh, of thinking but then we can we can understand it in a very different way. Um, we can understand, um, okay, well, let's look at uh, statistics. Let's look at, okay, children that are, uh, that are raised in um, single-parent households, their um, likelihood of doing drugs, their likelihood of falling into crime, their likelihood of being unemployed, their likelihood of just being a burden on society and costing society overall, you know, millions and billions of dollars, um, that likelihood goes way up according to the statistics and studies when you have more children being born into single parent households. Okay. And then let's not even talk about the psychological trouble that the child, him or herself has to go through, right? Um, children also have rights just because you know, two adults consented to uh, sleep together. Well, what about the child that could potentially be born out of that? And what about his rights? And what about his life and livelihood? And so there's all these costs and all of this harm. Right. And so if you think that the law should um, prevent harm and should protect people's interests, then in that light, that makes total sense that society at large has a stake in whether two people are sleeping together or not. So in a sense, it is an issue for government to consider because the point of government is to protect people and to provide a society that offers 
the 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 most well-being possible and what you're saying here is yeah well that includes certain moral and and even religious positions and uh the fact that we've now kind of thrown all that out and um government decides what's what's right and what's ethical and what's not you know without any kind of uh, religious influence although that's also problematic because you know i think even in america we still have a strong judeo-christian um heritage uh at least you know to say how much of that is actually being applied as a different matter but there is that kind of connection but you're saying you know if we're just uh if government says we have no right to to tell people how they should you know enjoy or not enjoy their bodies um but yet the, as a result we're actually causing more societal and economic damage um then this actually should be a government issue is is that uh one way to understand it or, or a point you're making here yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a government matter. It's a social matter. It's something that everyone has a stake in, and a uh, legal system that doesn't take that into in consideration is actually unjust and is actually oppressive, and um, you know, unideal to say the least. So when we look at when we make that comparison, we see okay, well, in Islam, this is factored in. This consideration is factored in. Um, sexual relations are uh, regulated because if you know, and and it's it's procedural, right? So that's something that people don't understand um, when it comes to the Sharia and uh, specifically with the Hudud, um, and that's a major topic that we can't really do justice to in the this short time. But um, it's procedural, so there's evidence, there's a court of law, there's a prosecution. Someone is either convicted or not. Um, and then, you know, that, so there, there's a procedure there, but at least it's something that's addressed. Yeah. But in the media, they just show like an uncle who, you know, stabbed his daughter because of an honor killing, right. In some village somewhere. And, uh, she had sex out of wedlock. So now we ran her over with our car and everyone's recording it. And it's like, oh yeah, this is your Sharia. Right. So it's like, it's also trying to show that, um, you know, having these moral constructs and processes is barbaric from start to end. But you're saying, no, there's actually um, documentation and evidence of this, especially in, in Islamic civilizations that, you know, it wasn't just, you know, grab people and burn them or, or chop their heads off or stone them just because, you know, I smelled the possibility of adultery, which sometimes happens in these, you know, more less educated, ignorant uh, villages, so to speak. But you're saying this is it's just like any other court process, just like you would have in the United States in, in, in this uh, context of, um, you know, a society where Islam is integrated more so in the governmental structure. Correct? Right. Absolutely. Like if according to the Sharia, if a dad harms his daughter because he suspects that she is uh, having sex prior to marriage, he's the one who's liable to be punished uh, in a, according to Islamic law. So I, I don't think that, you know, all of these sensationalized examples um, of on the, in the present day are, are all, you know, outside the bounds of what Islam actually prescribes uh, on these issues. So definitely we can't look to do you know, some of these countries and how they're doing things as representative of Sharia. But we have to look at, okay, what is the actual doctrine and what has actually been codified and practiced in Islamic civilization? And that's what we should use as a basis of comparison. Um, but yeah, so that's an example of how I would, uh, on just this one topic, right, 
um, sexual morality go about critiquing and deconstructing um, some of these ideas. And the thing is that I'm, I'm using the same information that's available to everyone. Like when it comes to the statistics on crime rate, um, drug use, unemployment, when, when the number of single parent households goes up, that's all very well established research. And even, you know, those on the political left will use those statistics to say that, oh, we need to have more abortion, right? Because um, when we uh, legalize abortion, then people who get pregnant um, because uh, they're having sex outside of marriage and they don't and they don't want to have a child, well, then they have abortion and we have less of those uh, children in society. And so that helps on all of these economic and societal indicators. And so this was an argument that was made in Freakonomics. Uh, if, you, if you're familiar with that popular book, they argue that, oh, look, we see such a drop in the crime rate in the 90s. Why is that? Well, it's because abortion, Roe v. Wade, uh, became protected. And then um, so more, we just presume that more people have abortions. And that resulted in all of this, you know, this decrease in crime, decrease in drugs, so on and so forth. But you can take that same argument and say, okay, well, you're basically saying you're saying that abortion is something that should be legal because it has these benefits. Well, then we can use the same argument. Uh, And our argument doesn't depend on killing babies. So it's better in that sense, too. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like. You know, I think, again, it keeps going back to the worldview and how we define what's right, what's what's wrong, what what's moral. And I mean, the starting point is, you know, is sexuality something that should be disciplined or, you know, as in Western psychological terms, repressed, you know, because that's considered unhealthy, according to a lot of schools of thought, like your sexuality shouldn't be repressed, you should explore it, you should engage with it, it's a natural part of your biology, and so on and so forth. And so already from the starting point, you have a very different um, philosophical underpinning, which is going to result in a certain uh, certain behavioral patterns and expectations and societal outcomes, sure. But let me let me challenge you on something. Some people might go, well, Daniel, you're kind of essentializing too. You're just assuming that everyone who has sex outside of marriage or who gets pregnant outside of wedlock, their families are always, you know, damaged and, and distorted and uh, a financial burden on, on, on everybody. Um, you know, what would you say to that? Yeah, well, we would, there's always exceptions, Right. But the law is based on generality. Right. Um, I'm sure there are, um, you know, uh, 10 year olds, 11 year olds that would be perfectly capable to drive a car um, and and would be perfectly safe in doing so. Uh, But that doesn't mean we base the law on the legal driving age and when you can get a driving permit based on those exceptions. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I get your point. Well, I want to I want to swing back to that to the second question, like that we were we started uh, at the beginning of the conversation. So, all right, let's say I find uh, the Islamic worldview to be, you know, more in harmony with with what I consider to be true, good, and beautiful. And um, what's interesting is even the word iman, uh, which is often translated as faith, um, it comes from the root word amana, which means to have trust or security in a thing. Right. So if I like, for example, I trusted that you were going to show up for 
uh, our episode today, right? I had trust in you that that's, that was, was going to happen. And so this idea of Iman is almost like, which worldview do I entrust myself more to, right? Whether there is a God or there isn't a God, or this religion or not a religion, or this is right or this isn't right. So in the end of the day, humans are all trusting in someone or something or some school of thought, okay? And there's a difference between being taught what is right versus what I've learned to be right. And sometimes what we're being taught is simply social engineering and whatever institutions of education we happen to go through. But as you described, you know, your early years of becoming a Muslim skeptic, you started to be like, well, hold on a second. Is what, I'm, what I've been taught perhaps inaccurate or is what I'm learning inaccurate? And then there kind of goes through this uh, synthesis, if you will, and, and filtering out process of what is my truth, at least, right? Um, so let's say, we, you know, we accept Islam as a worldview, and we find there's a lot of uh, reasonable and logical um, points for, for why I made that decision. Um, what about now when you get into things like the unseen? Um, you know, this sometimes is a hard thing for people to believe, or, or uh, even some Muslims are like, yeah, you know, I believe in God and, and his prophet, and we should, you know, do good things. But, you know, I don't know about all this other, you know, wacky stuff, like, oh, the devil and, you know, whispers from Satan and all this stuff. I mean, is this just a matter of that you should enter into the religion fully and don't follow the footsteps of Satan. In other words, you have to take the whole picture and not just certain pixels of it. Or do you think that, you know, because the the current worldview of science and, and how we're meant to understand things empirically and anything that doesn't fall into this uh, methodology, we just consider it to be, you know, false for now or, or just inaccessible. So there's no point of talking about it. Sure. Um, so the thing that I say is, uh, so what, what's the evidence that we have that as Muslims, what's the evidence for jinn, that jinn exists? How do we prove that? Gonna, I was going to say, I mean, if, if, you, if you've ever experienced, uh, you know, maybe an exorcism or somebody who, quote unquote, was possessed by a jinn, I mean, for some people, that's a real narrative they have of their lives. But uh, that's just a little side note. Well, yeah. So that's what I was going to say is that, OK, if you ask me, OK, if a Muslim asks me, OK, what evidence is there for jinn, these demons? Like, do we have any evidence? I'll tell them, OK, are, are you a Muslim? They say yes, and I say, okay, well, the evidence is in the Quran, right? Allah is telling us about jinn. The Prophet ﷺ is telling us about jinn, that these entities exist, and they have this kind of influence on human beings, and they've had this history, and so on and so forth. We have that. So insofar as you're a Muslim, then that is the evidence. And so there's this idea that, okay, well, belief... Um, this is this has been my experience. I think a lot of people, a lot of Muslims have, have had this experience is that you start, um, you know, there's when it comes to belief, there's a kind of ineffable aspect to it. And then there's also a more um, rational aspect to it. Right. Um, in, ineffable in the sense that um, some you just believe because you have that sense like some you saw something or you read something you know I, I had converts come to me and say you know i read this verse of the quran um and i just knew that was the truth right that was it it just struck them that was it yeah it struck them yeah i i just use the word ineffable meaning that you can't really rationalize it or put it into terms that 
it'll be the same for someone else. Um, so there's that aspect, and we should we should not forget that we shouldn't like have this kind of cold um, understanding of okay, what is belief? It's just like a high, uh, uh, rational proof, like a mathematical proof. No, that's not what the experience of belief really is. But there, that doesn't mean that that isn't part of it. We can look at things um, more rationally as well, and Muslims can have that reflection. Okay, well look at the world around us like what is all this order that we see and how did it all come to be and where does it from it didn't create itself uh, so who created it and you can go through that kind of reflection and um, unfortunately uh, the kind of scientism that exists in the modern world today sometimes hijacks that process because people think oh well science has explained it god is not necessary and that frustrates me as someone who actually studied physics and at Harvard, and I didn't find those answers. I didn't find a coherent explanation for how the world is the way that it is and why does it have the order that it has. And that's what led me to you know, want to study philosophy and specifically the philosophy of science. And, and those answers don't exist. They're just presumed to exist. So again, this goes back to that dogmatism. But let's put that aside. Let's put that aside because that's a longer conversation. But if you reflect, if you reflect on, okay, well, look at the world around us. Look at the diversity of animals and organic species in the world and the complexity of the human body and the, and the human cell. And when you really get into that, um, it's just mind-blowing. And then that leads you to, okay, well, this is not all for nothing. You know, there was a creator. There had to be a creator. And then when you have that insight and you come to that conclusion, then you can start investigating, okay, well, what would a creator want of human beings? Uh, how would a creator interact with human beings? And then you can kind of go through a process of reflection that will you know, allow you to consider the different world beliefs. You know, we would think that um, if the creator were trying to interact with human beings, and give us a way to live our lives successfully um, because he's benevolent, we would think that, okay, the creator has benevolence. Then, okay, then which re religion, which uh, alleged true religion has been the most successful? Um, which religion has texts that have been maintained, like revelation that has been maintained and preserved and protected? Which, you know, you can, you can have you know, dozens of different considerations. I'm just giving you, you know, a small taste, but you can go through that analysis one by one and then come up with, okay, well, this most likely this is the right one. Islam is the right one. And, and then once you do that, and once you get to a place where you accept Islam, then that, that's just the beginning of belief, right? That's like the, that's the lowest level. And then you start practicing. And then through the practice of Islam, you, other things are revealed to you, right? And this is something that scholars say very clearly that when you, and even in Hadith, the Prophet says that when you take, and when you move toward Allah, Allah, when you walk towards Allah, Allah runs to you, right? And so things become, start becoming more, more clear are gaining this insight, this basira, and so on and so forth. And so you, other things are uh, solidify that faith. And it, I don't call it subjective. 
I think that it's very as objective and real as anything else. It's not just something in your mind. It's something that's coming uh, to a person. Um, and Allah says that he uh, solidifies faith and certain, gives certain people yaqeen. And we know about the awliya and on and on. So that's why I'm saying that there's, you have the, you, you can get to the doorstep of faith, of iman. And then when you walk through, then that's a whole other world. And then when you're in that world and you, you're, you start conditioning yourself by through practice of the deen, uh, then certain things become unquestionable. Because again, there's yaqeen, right? And you, you know, your faith in the Quran. And so when you read about jinn, then that's like, okay, this is what Allah has told me. So what other evidence do I need? I mean, there is the other, there are other evidences as well. I'm not denying that, yeah, there are um, trained psychiatrists who testify and say that, yeah, there, I witnessed an exorcism and there's no psychological explanation for what right. this uh, possessed it's not person schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not, not schizophrenia. This is, it's a whole other presence or energy. Right, exactly. And then, yeah, and then in faith, like you have jinn stories, right? And it's kind of like funny, cliche, oh yeah, the jinn stories. But no, the, there are things that happen to people. Um, and, and there is a reality to sihr, right? Um, and people have seen these things. And so that's just another layer of evidence and evidential reasoning. But all of that combined, you know, is what gives a Muslim iman and faith in, you know, what other people who are outside of that paradigm who haven't, whether they're obstinate or they're just lazy or they're arrogant, they haven't gone through the evidentiary steps and the reasoning think is just superstition, right? Uh, oh, just, you know, ghost stories, jinn and oh, angels and whatever. We don't care about that stuff. So that's, you know, that's just the brief answer to, to that line of question. No, I really appreciate your response. I think uh, it was it was well put. So let's this kind of connects now to this article that you wrote recently in, in February on, um, I think it was MuslimMatters.com. And uh, it was connected to some of this Pew Research and this other article. Oh, um, the article that uh, was about Jewish Americans was called How Liberalism Destroyed the American Jew. Right, right. And that was connected to some Pew Research that was trying to show how um, the Jewish community is becoming less and less uh, religious in actuality and um, considering uh, identity of, of, of being Jewish uh, to connect to other things which were um, you, it's, I guess the article was trying to show it, reflecting more of liberalism and secular ideas, which is very interesting because it's kind of like, you know, I've met secular Jews, I've met secular Christians, I've even met secular Muslims, um, and I always found that really interesting because it's like you're using a religious term yet a non-religious term to to define oneself, and it's like it's like saying I'm a meat-eating vegan. You know, is that really, is that like, you know, really possible? And uh, why don't you tell us more about the highlights of, of, of why you wrote this article and um, maybe share with us some interesting stats that uh, um, we, we should be aware of? Because I know one thing that came up for me when I was reading this, uh, these articles and checking out the Pew Research, what came to mind was the Hadith of the Prophet, I said him when he gave us 
advice or warning that, you know, we're as a Muslim community, we're going to follow the religious communities that went before us, the, the Jewish and the Christian community specifically, and in especially in matters of our um, evolution, if you will, and even the mistakes that we might make or the holes that we're going to fall into. And I'm wondering if you, that came up for you too when you were um, reading these uh, articles and putting together your, your response. Yeah, definitely. Um, that hadith uh, absolutely came in to mind uh, about um, following the Christians and Jews even into a lizard hole. Um, so the thing that really struck me is that you have this article, um, and it's using Pew uh, Research data, talking about how liberalism destroyed the American Jew, which is pretty stark. Um, and it's written by a Jewish American, um, and he cites um, all kinds of rabbis and uh, different Jewish leaders in, in writing this op-ed. But he um, cites this Pew Research um, where they ask Jewish Americans, what does it mean to be Jewish? And the responses um, were pretty stark, I thought, um, looking at it from a Muslim perspective, because you see things like, okay, number one on the list on what is an essential part of being Jewish is, number one is remembering the Holocaust, okay? Okay, so that's one thing. Um, then the second is like leading an ethical and moral life, um, working for justice and equality is third. And then, like, caring about Israel is right there at the top. Having a good sense of humor. Um, and then way at the bottom is observing Jewish law, right? Yeah, so, which is interesting because it's it's like, okay, is, is Jewish law something that is separate from leading an ethical and moral life? Is observing Jewish law something that's separate from justice and equality? Um, you would think that, no, they would be, you know, from a Jewish perspective, those things are intertwined. But no, there's like a big gap um, there. And uh, Jewish law falls very low on the list when it comes to what it means to be a Jew. And so this is alarming. I mean, just thinking about the Muslim community, because we see similar disassociation um, from Sharia on the one hand, and then um, justice, equality, um, fairness, and so forth on the other hand. And all of that, when it comes to justice, equality, being ethical, that the author of this article, and I think he makes a good point, is that all of that is just based on the larger culture of liberalism, because liberalism is the dominant moral theory, uh, as, as we discussed. And, and then if you're part of a culture, if you're part of that culture and you are um, trying to fit in and assimilate and be, you know, uh, involved in these dis different institutions, then you kind of have to, uh, you start taking on that conception of what it means to be a just person um, and, and a good person, an ethical person. And so that's very disturbing because if Jewish Americans have gone through that process over the generations that they've been in the U.S., then Muslims are going to most likely follow suit. And we're seeing that uh, as we speak. And there was a recent Pew uh, poll done that was published um, just last month looking at Muslim Americans. And the result was that Muslim Americans are now more liberal uh, than ever before. 
and they quantify that in different ways. But okay, well, that tells me um, maybe someone else will have a different understanding. But that tells me that, okay, we're following essentially the same path. And what I pointed out in this article is that what is it that drove Jewish Americans to assimilate uh, at a faster rate than they might have otherwise? And what, from my research, what became apparent is that there is definitely fear that was a driving force, being afraid because of you know World War II and what happened to the Jews uh, by the Nazis in Europe, um, those in America, there was a sensitivity that, okay, never again, this is not going to happen to us again. And so that fear will lead um, a community to not stick out and to want to um, not be the other. And so that m- makes a community want to adopt a lot of the practices and beliefs and outlook and political language, moral language of the wider society. Wow. So wait, are you are you per- perhaps suggesting that on that on the data there, the number one, um, one of the most important facets of being Jewish, according to that Pew uh, study was I think it was about 70 percent said, you know, um, remembering the Holocaust, right? Because this was, of course, a horrific collective trauma that was done to a religious community. And you think that this, because it's one of the foundational values of many um, people who identify as Jewish today, um, this is connected to uh, what you're discussing here, the fear factor, and that if we remain other or distinguish ourselves too much, um, we run the risk of uh, being targeted or, or victimized by the greater societies. And you think that there may be a connection here? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's, it is that fear factor that, uh, and, and the thing about the fear is that not all fear is justified, right? Um, because you can be, if you fall into a victim mentality, and here I'm not talking about uh, Jewish Americans. I'm just talking about the Muslim community. Um, you know, when Donald Trump was elected, um, there were a lot of people in the Muslim community saying that, oh, we're, on a, we're in a pre-genocidal moment, meaning that, oh, wow, Muslim Americans are on the brink of genocide. And I thought that was um, definitely an exaggeration and a kind of um, victim mentality. And I'm not saying that um, Donald Trump wasn't a threat to the Muslim American community. Is a threat. (laughs) Is a threat. Yeah, he's still in office, unfortunately. But um, I didn't think it warranted his election. I don't think warranted this fear that, okay, we're all going to be thrown into gas chambers. Um, But that's the rhetoric that is being spewed to the Muslim community. And so what is the effect of that? That has an effect. Um, It will make Muslims not want to, you know, dress a certain way that conflicts with kind of the dominant cultural modes of dress. It will make Muslims not want to talk a certain way or think a certain way or behave a certain way. And so there's this conditioning that's created by this hyper uh, fear um, that is just self-generated. Right. It's it's based on external factors. Right. Um, But it's just dialed up to an unreasonable degree. And so that's right. the kind of thing that I was highlighting in that, that article, and I still think is an issue um, with Muslims just over-exaggerating 
um, what's actually happening in the world. Yeah. I mean, I would like to add that probably other religious communities, especially our Jewish and um, uh, our Jewish uh, brothers and sisters, they probably feel the same way right now. I mean, there's also anti-Semitism happening uh, uh, towards them as well. It's not just the Muslims. And probably anyone who is an Anglo-Saxon Protestant might feel a little uncomfortable right now, especially if their mode of, of life um, can distinguish them, whether it's in dress or, or what community centers they visit or how they, you know, think or interact. I mean, it seems like every, everybody is, is feeling sensitive right now, whether, you know, you're a religious or a racial or ethnic minority. Right, absolutely. Um, we, I think there are differences, though, in the way that different communities respond. Um, I think that if we look at black Americans, um, their response has marked, marked differences with how uh, Muslims, uh, and I know there are a lot of, um, you know, about over or nearly a third of the American Muslim population is black. Um, but if you look at the black community uh, overall, Muslims and non-Muslims, their response hasn't been to just kind of blend in. Their response hasn't been, okay, we have to kind of get rid of or dial down our views and our beliefs and kind of blend in. That hasn't been their response. Their response has been, no, this is who we are, and we're not going to be intimidated uh, to just change and to kind of self-censor ourselves. And I wish that the larger Muslim community um, would uh, learn some lessons from this, that you can be, you know, we have the opportunity to be ourselves and to live according to our principles and to advocate according to our principles. So why don't we do that? Um, there's no reason for us to just hide in a hole um, out of fear, um, it's just not justified. Well, well, let me ask you this. How do you know that the majority of Muslims in America are having this response of the fear factor and hiding in a hole or let's shed more religious and layers that we have because we are afraid? I mean, how do you know that that's even the trend? And, and how, do, how have you observed that? Is this from your own interaction with community and, and kind of people commenting on posts that you write? I mean, how, what's your evidence? Well, yeah, definitely uh, from my personal experience, uh, what I've seen, um, people who have approached me, like uh, when it comes to my Facebook page and my website, there I, I try to be uh, as genuine as possible and to um, not shy away from positions that are well established in Islam but are politically incorrect today uh, in the Western context. And so, you know, I, I try to be. Um, very clear on, okay, this is what Islam holds, and as a Muslim, this is what I hold. Um, and people have told me that, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't really address this issue. You shouldn't really talk about this issue. There, it's not necessary uh, because look at the political environment. We need to just lie low right now. We shouldn't rock the boat. It's dangerous. We're about to be thrown in, into concentration camps, yada, yada, yada. And basically telling me to censor myself. And I find that, you know, very uh, counterproductive, to say the least, and dangerous um, at worst, because uh, I'll give you an example, um, like on the issue of same-sex marriage. Um, so this is a, a complicated issue. Again, we can't really do justice to it in this short time. But, you know, when it comes to uh, promoting or supporting same-sex marriage, 
I can't see how a Muslim could support same-sex marriage. And there are a lot of arguments that, okay, you know, we might, uh, we know that Islamically it's immoral, um, uh, same-sex intimacy is immoral, but we can still support it politically um, because, you know, we live in the United States, it's a non-Muslim country, we can still support that politically. But I, I really don't buy that argument, and, and there's a lot of reasons why, um, you know, and I wrote an article about it uh, for MuslimMatters.org, but um, without getting into all the arguments, the basic point is that, look, you know, this is something that is immoral. You know, we believe is immoral. We maintain that it's immoral from our tradition. So how can we support it politically? Other uh, groups come to the political table with what they think is right or wrong. You know, you have, um, you know, uh, feminists, for example, uh, left-wing feminists coming uh, to the political arena saying that, look, uh, we don't think that, we think that women should have the right to abort, and we don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, we think that's great. We think it's liberating. And so that's their belief. They're coming to the table and advocating for that. If uh, other groups are coming and saying, we are going to stick with our principles and values, but you feel that the Muslims may um, not be very solid in that, you know, like how, how, are, how do, who's, who's choosing and deciding what's important and what we should support and what we shouldn't? I mean, is this coming from, you know, just, uh, you know, Muslim celebrities out there, organizations? I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a cohesive central um, unit that the Muslim community, at least in America, is um, deciding how to interact with what's going on around us. It seems like every community has their own approach, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. It's very reactionary. It's, it's very reactionary and unprincipled. And when you act un in an unprincipled way, then it's very easy to trip up and to contradict yourself and to fall into um, all kinds of uh, problems. And, and the problems I'm talking about is not like political problems. Because that's really the least of our worries, is the political situation. What we need to be worried about is the next generation of Muslims and what we're teaching the next generation of Muslims. If you look at the statistics, again, going back to the example of homosexuality, um, you have more than 50% of American Muslims who think that there's nothing immoral uh, about homosexuality. Um, that's another research result that's come out in the past few years. Um, support for same-sex marriage is definitely more than 50% in the American Muslim community. And so we, the question is, are our values regarding sexuality being communicated to this young generation? And what, are, what is the community going to believe um, you know, in 50 years, in 20 years, right? Things are changing. And so the religion is not being... And it's a domino effect because then the next generation is going to be even worse and so forth. So then is Islam even going to be around in America in any kind of recognizable form in, you know, within two or three generations? I think that's a very real question. And it's more important than, oh, OK, are we going to have like, are we going to get invited to the White House this year or something like that? Right. Well, it's also possible that, I mean, a lot of this this research that you're um uh, referring to here, you know, the 50% Muslims who accept homosexuality as um, okay. I mean, w also the question is, are these what we call, you know, are they cultural Muslims? 
or are they really, you know, devout Muslims, so to speak, right? Because we know that there's just like the other religious communities, you have people that are like, yeah, I'm Muslim, but, you know, there's nothing really Islamic about them, so to speak. And I kind of, I, for me, the difference is, you know, there is cultural Muslims, which is, this is, you know, the religion is just part of a, my cultural identity. Um, but it kind of stops there um, versus, you know, somebody who really is trying to live an Islamic identity. It's it's a lot more existential for them. At least that's how I like to frame it. Right. It's, this is my existentialism. It's not just like my cultural facet, because, you know, one thing that I notice um, is, you know, these Muslim comedians, celebrities, actors, musicians, it's like Muslims are, are getting a little excited about like, yeah, we're hitting the mainstream and like we have a show on Netflix. It's a Muslim guy and comedian and this and that. And then I go and I see these things and I'm like, there's, you know, nothing really Islamic about them. But like one show, um, I remember seeing some an episode uh, that someone um, told me I should check out. And basically the whole show was about avoiding prayer and um, finally telling his parents that he eats pork and he doesn't care and that him and his cousin, you know, go out drinking and they convince each other to lie to their parents to miss aid prayer so they can go to a barbecue and eat pork. Like that was this that was the, the story of the show. And I'm like, you know, are we really proud of that? The only way you can really be um, a true uh, American is if you could just get rid of all your Muslim stuff. But if you want to keep the cultural stuff, like, you know, jokes about immigrants and the food you eat and, and you know, the color of your skin, uh, that's cool. You know, that's tolerable. But when you start actually showing any conviction in the Islamic tradition, um, you, you don't get that. And I've seen this happen. A lot of comedians and stuff, they're like, oh, I'm not religious. I drink. I'm this. And they just put it right out there. They want everyone to know I'm not Islamic, but uh, I just happen to be connected to this Muslim community. Um, do, do you think that's that's uh, that's also kind of a reflection of, of some of the data here that you're discussing and and, um, and and showing concern for? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there's a lot that can be said about this. I mean, it goes back also to our earlier point about dogmatism, because as you mentioned, there is tolerance for certain superficial uh, or from our perspective, superficial things like oh, what you eat um, or different kind of cultural aspects of South Asia or the Arab world. Uh, but there's no there's no ideology tolerance. There's no like belief tolerance. Um, and if anyone anyone who has worked uh, in the corporate world uh, in the West knows is that you know if you don't drink, um, you're at a big disadvantage in the corporate culture. Um, even if, you know, and, and depending on certain views that you have, like if you think that, okay, yeah, I think that homosexual, uh, homosexual behavior is sinful or immoral. That's also like, you can't express that. You can't, uh, say that out loud. Or even if people find out, find out about you, that that's what you think, then your career is in jeopardy in, in the corporate world. Uh, and definitely at the fortune 500 companies, like you can't express that. And so there's this, and, and even talking about God, like coming out and saying, okay, I'm, I'm a believer. I believe that, you know, there is heaven and hell and there's God that will judge us. And, you know, this, this is um, the Quran and things like that. That's, that's taboo. And, and so there's no tolerance or openness about those aspects of what makes us who we are. Um, but okay, yeah, we'll have like shawarma night uh, at the office uh, to honor this, you know, Arab culture. So yeah, that's it. Goes to the back to the question of dogmatism and not realizing that 
you're being dogmatic and oppressive and intolerant. But then also, when you know, you have people uh, like these comedians um, who claim that they're culturally Muslim. And there is this larger idea that, okay, a Muslim just is whoever considers himself Muslim, then that's what a Muslim is. That's how we define Muslim. I think that's very problematic um, because there are theological requirements um, for being Muslim. Right. Like being a vegan. Like there are tenets to being a vegan. You can't just make up your own veganism. Like nobody would accept that I eat meat, but I'm also a vegan necessarily. Exactly. Like that's just, uh, it's like actually that goes against the very idea, right? Just like being being an atheist Muslim, it's like Muslim is to submit yourself to God. So how can you be an atheist Muslim? So at that point, they're just talking about a cultural heritage or connection here. But do you think they should just remove the word Muslim completely from their sense of identity in that case? I mean, is that your position? Or do you think, because some people go, no, you can't say that. It, only Allah knows. And if someone claims they're Muslim, then, you know, who are you to say they're not? Right. But I mean, uh, how would that even be uh, addressed? And are we using Islamic tradition to define what is Muslim? Like, are there real conditions or pillars here that would define somebody uh, as a Muslim in Islamic law or, or that's not even stipulated? Well, I think that's where um, the conflict really lies, is that um, it's, it's really a struggle for defining these terms. And you have people who want to redefine Muslim and kind of divorce it from all theological implications. And that's what happened with uh, Jew, you know, the uh, Jewish identity, uh, according to some uh, statistics, about 50 percent of Jews don't believe in God. Right. And you do have Jewish atheists. I mean, that's an established group within the Jewish community. And so there has been this transformation over time, over centuries, um, if we look at Jewish history, of um, the term Jew being defined into more of an ethnicity. Um, and then the same thing is happening with Muslim as a term, and we should resist that, and we should speak out against that, uh, and not just uh, concede that, oh yeah, well, whoever wants to define the term however they want, they can do so. No, like, I think the vegan example was perfectly apt. Like, I think vegans as a community would be very upset if veganism uh, became associated with meat eating and, and or even, you know, uh, unethical farming practices. Like, what if, what if uh, you know, some of these big uh, uh, farming agricultural industries started appropriating the term vegan uh, and said, oh, yeah, we're completely vegan compliant and they're like doing all these kinds of uh, despicable things to their farm animals. I think there'd be moral outrage on the part of vegans um, that their term has been hijacked. And I think Muslims need to have that same sense of uh, ghayra and uh, jealousy uh, to translate of their, of their religious terms. It's not just up for grabs, you know, whoever wants to define however they want. No, we're going to we're going to defend the uh, correct meaning of Muslim. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's how what our uh, orientation should be on that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's almost like you're, you're strengthening the, at least from my understanding, the classical argument in Islamic um, doctrine and literature that, you know, there is a true perception of actual reality 
and the manuals or guidance that comes from the divine is meant to guide us and help us uh, see things for what they truly are. And the, the point of, of the path is to refine oneself, to align and be in harmony with how things have been set up, right? And uh, if if we don't hold this position, then of course it's going to be a free-for-all. Of course it's whoever wants to define and whoever has the most influence and the most media, propaganda, marketing, whatever you want to call it. But is that the position that you're kind of coming from? Like, no, there is a, an actual truth that's that's established. Sure, you know, interpretive efforts and adjustments are always part of an evolving intellectual community, but there are things that are Khalas, yani they've, they're in place. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set the balance. He set the harmony and he tells us don't transgress the balance. So what would God be referring to if there's nothing already established? If everything is just a matter of, you know, relativity and evolving and so on and so forth. Uh, is that kind of where you're coming from and, and what prompts you to, 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 to run with the mission and objectives that you have? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, this idea of relativism and subjectivism is definitely a disease um, that a lot of Muslims these days are suffering from. And they think that, oh, well, you know, Islam doesn't have an established clergy. Um, there's no authority to tell us uh, what the Quran definitively means and what the Prophet Sallallahu definitively meant. Um, and it's all up in the air, so we can just co-opt the terms however we want according to our personal interpretation. And this kind of subjectivism is coming, again, from uh, Western philosophy. And if you look at the, the philosophy itself, again, it's full of holes and it's incoherent uh, for many reasons that we can get into. So when we look at something like scientific interpretation, uh, like you have a particle accelerator and it um, reads out certain data, um, you, you have to be... Uh, you have to have the required knowledge to be able to interpret what that data says. Um, and it's, yeah, there can be professional disagreement among scientists, um, and there might be two or three um, valid opinions that come out of uh, interpreting that data, but it's not a free-for-all. It's not anyone, you know, a guy off the street without who can, you know, barely do basic arithmetic is going to be reading particle accelerator data and interpreting it. Uh, and trying to understand what it means. So the same thing with um, uh, religious texts, with the Quran, and with our tradition is that, yeah, um, it is open. Um, people can interpret it how uh, based on their uh, scholarly view. But you have to be a scholar. You have to have the credentials, um, and it's very uh, merit-based, actually, in Islam as opposed to other traditions. Like you don't have to go to a centralized authority. You just have to um, study the text and be certified by other people who know what they're doing and what they've uh, what they're talking about and who have gone through that same path to say that okay yes you um, you have permission to teach on this subject you have the permission to interpret uh, and do tafsir you have the permission to do that so it's it's very rational it's very um, merit based and it's not just all a free-for-all where anyone can come in with their two-bit opinion just because they have a degree from, I don't know, like BU or Brandeis or Harvard even, um, because uh, they've taken a P class or maybe they even have a PhD and they have a degree. Now they're quote-unquote a scholar 
scholar of Islam. Right. Which I mean, even even the Quran says, you know, when you, when you don't know something, ask those who know. And this this is true for if I go do a medical uh, diagnosis report and anal- you know, am I going to ask my wife to analyze that? You know, if she has no medical background, it makes no sense, right? Or if I'm going to take my car to a butcher and say, hey, can you fix my car? I mean, you you always go to special people that specialize in in the very subject matter that you're looking for answers or guidance or healing in, right? And Islam Islam is no different, and and I think every religious tradition is the same way. I mean, I've sat with teachers of other religious doctrines, and they have the same um, idea, right? That there is a uh, established tradition. There are scholars. There's a hierarchy of knowledge, and I've experienced this with masters of Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam alike. You know, um, so it's 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 a good and beyond. Point. I mean, yeah. it's, that's why I was saying with science, it's not just religion. It's uh, even uh, the scientific disciplines, which, from um, a secular perspective, are the peak is the peak of knowledge, right? Um, is what scientists are doing in their labs. And even in, in that context, you have a hierarchy of knowledge, you have experts, and uh, it's not just a subjective exercise on how you feel about certain things determines the truth. Right. Feelings aren't always facts. But, okay, let me ask you this. So we know that in the Sunnah, the Prophet told us that at, at the end of time, you're going to have people come out as the knowledgeable ones when in fact they're not. And the actual knowledgeable people won't be consi- considered, you know, the knowledgeable ones. So there's that issue. And number two, how would you define what is a real Muslim scholar? Or how do we know how to identify them, in your opinion? Because there are people that have that issue. It's like, okay, who who should I learn from? You know, because this guy says something, this guy says something else, this uh, woman says something else. How do I know who's really speaking the truth here? Yeah, I mean, this is a big question, um, and there are hadith that speak to uh, coming time where there will just be so much confusion amongst Muslims and there won't be a way. Um... So, yeah, share, please share with us the hadith. Okay, so the Prophet said um, he, he was talking about uh, Dajjal, the Antichrist. Um, and so the Prophet said um, that uh, let him who hears of the Antichrist go far from him. Uh, for I swear by Allah that a man will come to him, meaning to the Antichrist, thinking that he's a believer, and then you'll follow him because of shubahat, uh, roused by him, in him by him. Um, so this idea of shubahat or ambiguous matters, um, uh, confused matters, questions, these are um, something that definitely exists in our time. There's plenty of shubahat that people are suffering from. Um, and there aren't often clear answers. So the question is, uh, who do you trust? Uh, who can you really rely on? And I think the only way to really gauge that in this time is how how conformant a particular scholar is with um, the scholarly tradition. Um, and because we have established positions, we have positions that have all of this support um, among the schools of thought, the madhahib. And that should be our criteria um, for determining uh, how um, you know, close to the truth a particular scholar is in this day and age. And it's a very rational reason for this. Um, it's because the level of knowledge that we have today 
really pales in comparison when we look at the giants of uh, Islamic scholarship in the past. Um, like there's no comparison between the level of knowledge that someone like uh, Imam Ahmed or Abu Hanifa or, or Imam Shafi or Malik have, uh, or even you know uh, scholars that were relatively less than them uh, in our history, compared to anyone today. Even the most knowledgeable scholars of today really pale in comparison just by their uh, grasp of the material, grasp of the nusus, the source text, and their ability to derive rulings and their understanding. And that's that's a fact that's plainly acknowledged right, by scholars today, by the most uh, knowledgeable scholars today. So given that relative level of knowledge, like if, the le- if the level of knowledge was the same today as it was, even 500 years ago, then okay, then you know you can, you, you might have opinions that diverge um, from uh, based on you know different circumstances today, opinions that diverge uh, from uh, the scholarly consensus or from the schools of thought. But given that uh, the level of knowledge is so lacking in comparison, um, it's just safer. You know, and more rational, you know, if you want to stay safe and you want to preserve uh, your dean, because this is not like a light issue, right? If you follow a scholar um, who is misguiding you, you're still held accountable for that. And you'll stand before Allah on Yom Al-Qiyamah and be asked about that. Um, So this is not a light issue. You have to be careful and you have to be cautious. Um, and, and again, like this hadith about Dajjal and being able to confuse people who consider themselves to be believers. And they might be believers, but then they go and are confused. And so how does that happen, right? How can someone uh, change in, in such a dramatic way? And so we have to be very uh, hyper uh, careful, sensitive and, and cautious, uh, given what we know about these times that we're in. And so the criteria that I have that I think makes most sense is, okay, let's, let's compare and see if there's a view that diverges significantly from what the scholarly precedent has been. Because in theory, yeah, you, um, Imam Malik or Imam Ahmed, um, they're not uh, infallible. The scholars of those madhahib are not infallible. They could have, they do their ijtihad, they could have made a mistake. In theory, someone else can have a different ijtihad from those four. Um, so there's no denying that. But is that something that's feasible? Like, do I, do I have more confidence in the ijtihad of the Hanbali school or the Maliki school or, you know, some uh, modern scholar today who, you know, has, who knows if he, he or she even has usul to begin with. And maybe that usul, even if they have it, is completely baseless and incoherent. And so it's just a rational uh, line of thinking as far as I'm concerned. Right. Sounds like uh, we're holding on to hot coals in these times, huh? And uh, and there's also the other yeah. end of it too. Not only like I'm enamored by a certain scholar and I think that, you know, mashallah, I'm investing my salvation in them and, and I want to learn from them and so on and so forth. Um, and they may actually be a good person, a good scholar, but 
you know, like you said, they don't necessarily have the depth and the grasp of all these different disciplines. They're not polymaths in the same way that, you know, some of our classical scholars were. And you also have, on the other hand, the kind of local imam who, you know, from my humble experiences, you know, especially the, you know, immigrant uh, imams that come and, and haven't had a lot of education beyond what they learned back home. They're also a whole other form of misguidance, in my opinion, almost like um, unhealthy uh, dogmatic Islamic orthodoxy or cultural Islam. And I, you also find this on the other end, too, right, where people are like, no, Islam's the right way. But then the, the version of Islam that they're teaching um, also goes against a lot of rational or intellectual principles of the religion itself. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there is uh, ignorance. And right now, with uh, the Internet being available, it's a curse and it's also a blessing. Um, the blessing is that you can compare and contrast um, people from all over the world. And so if someone is... You know, in the past, you might have not had any opportunity uh, to uh, learn from anyone other than the local imam. But now that's, that's not the case. Uh, there is no excuse. Um, if, you know, something is, if you learn something from your local imam that doesn't feel right, then you can investigate. You can consult with other, uh, another mufti. Like there's email, right? There's cell phone technology. You can uh, verify and so uh, there needs to be this sense of due diligence uh, when it comes to religious matters. Um, and unfortunately, I don't see a lot of that um, nowadays, but hopefully we can revive it um, so that Muslims, I mean, there's this understanding of an intelligent consumer, right? Uh, and I don't want to make it seem like Islam is a product, but the idea of being intelligent about how we take our deen um, it's very relevant, uh, and we need to be intelligent about it. Right. So I'm hearing you say you, you certainly feel that all Muslims have a responsibility to seek knowledge and to verify things. This whole, like, I'm just going to follow someone blindly or invest my salvation in another person's ideas um, and, and guidance, that's not going to go far existentially, especially when we consider divine accountability. Right? Are you really going to be comfortable meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and saying, well, that's what my sheikh said or that's what my imam said? But I've also heard other, even mashaykh say, hey, this is why you should follow a madhab because if you're following the doctrine of a madhab, um, there's this idea of almost like the sheikh of the madhab will uh, be taking responsibility for the mistakes that you did because you're following his school of thought, for instance. Have you ever heard this uh, argument or this uh, re reflection? Yeah, but um, that uh, counsel is based on um, if it's in a, like it's a school of thought, it's like it has the credentials to be followed in that way. So there's definitely taqlid um, as a very important concept um, because, you know, uh, me or you or the average, you know, Muslim on the street is not going to have the time or the resources to be able to derive and do his own ijtihad to understand, okay, what is the absolute correct position on this or that issue? Um, but when it comes to uh, trying to find a scholar to follow, um, there are different, there are indications um, that will allow you to judge that, whether such a person is worth following. And the, the biggest indication in my book is that, okay, this person is in line with the schools of thought, the madahib, because you have people today, um, very prominent people, scholars, uh, whether they're real ulama or not, 
um, who will say, oh, well, this is what um, all the uh, Mada have held on this issue, and I have a different view, or I have a different position. And that makes me feel very uncomfortable, and that should make you know Muslims feel very uncomfortable that, oh, okay, maybe this is not the best person to trust, right? Uh, going back to the question of trust with my deen. Um, but uh, the issue of taqlid, uh, I think, is very important nonetheless. And after you have identified those uh, scholars that are on the sunnah and are true uh, carriers of the tradition, then yes, at that point, uh, it's good to follow them uh, and to do taqlid uh, on on those issues that relate to a person's faith. Mm-hmm. But okay, let me ask you this. So if I say, you know, I follow an opinion that is different from the form of the in some cases, it may just be my shahawat, right, my own desire or my own position. I may even sincerely believe that. Right. And now, are there also times where maybe these new positions that have been formulated on certain matters um, actually need to change or, or, or the, there's more evidence to show that this position needs to be reexamined or reformed, so to speak? Um, I know that there, it depends on what we're talking about, but is that also possible? Because some people might hear what you're saying and go, OK, so our religion is now crystallized in, you know, the 10th century or 7th century. So where is the whole um, idea of um, ishtihad and, and, you know, evolution of thought and, and interpretive efforts to constantly extract the truth and practice it as best as we can, provided our existential realities? I mean, on the one hand, is it crystallized? And on the other hand, how much room is there for for flexibility and quote-unquote reform or reinterpretive efforts um, to, to, pr- to produce different positions on matters? Well, my question to that is how much has the world changed uh, since the 10th century uh, or, you know, the first century of Islam? Like how much change has there been? Um, if you're talking about new technology, like, yeah, there might be uh, certain technological questions like, okay, if I email a uh, non-mahram, uh, is that khalwa, right? Is that cyber khalwa, right? You can have questions like that that are based on modern technology, but, um, and, and that, that's a case where ishtihad would have to be used, but it's still based on the usul, um, the, the uh, principles of the schools of thought that have been established already. Um, and so this idea of crystallization or the gates of ishtihad have been closed, I think that, that confuses people because the principles are alive and well, and the principles are, are what lead to the ability to um, give fatawa on new circumstances uh, because of technology or because of something that is genuinely unprecedented. But you have people who are saying, oh, well, we live in new times and new culture and now people think that um you know same-sex intimacy means is about love before it was about lust but you know that's the past and now we live in a time where it's about love so we need to change you know the uh you know the prohibition against these acts and so that i think that's completely baseless and it makes no sense like the essential activity hasn't changed like there hasn't been anything new it's the same thing like it's the same act it's the same behavior um it's and 
from another perspective, the same desire. It's the same human beings who are engaged in that. And so, yes, the rulings from the past are just as applicable um, from the beginning of Islam until today. Um, but, yeah, if there's something that's genuinely new, genuinely unprecedented, okay, then we can talk about those on a, on a case-by-case basis and whether it's actually the case that nothing within the usul of the established madhahib is applicable to that particular case. Like, if you find something like that, then I'd be happy, you know, to consider that example. Right, right. No, I, I think that's that's a that's a, a good response. I mean, I'm hearing you say, listen, the principles and the methods of coming to new conclusions based on new existential realities is already there. It's just a matter of harnessing that for the purposes to be. Um, and like this homosexuality example, you know, on the one hand, it's like, okay, let's just align ourselves with the liberal philosophy of the times. Um, and then sometimes you find a bounce from that where people get more barbaric and, uh, dogmatic in how, you know, horrible and wrong it is and how you should be stoned and, and all this nonsense. And, you know, isn't Islam's always trying to bring us somewhere to the middle. And so as someone who, for example, is in the field of human science and, 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 and these types of things, I mean, it's like, okay, wh- why don't we have Muslim psychologists who are doing more research on sexuality and the influence of environment, genetics, and psychology on a person's sexuality, intimacy issues, emotional capacities, and all these other variables that have a lot to do with a person's sexuality and desires in the first place. You know, it's almost like it's, we can't live in a black and white world. And uh, everything has to be assessed and understood on its own terms. But also, um, if we're really trying to sincerely find the truth, we have to put some effort into discovering that truth, right? We can't just either resort to something from way back then or just accept everything today without giving it further thought. And I think perhaps that's one of the things that frustrates you, uh, at least from my observation and and some of your writings. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think that... um... If we're when we want to pursue the truth, uh, there has to be a methodology. There has to be uh, guidelines, um, and the guidelines need to be accessible to people um, generally, because otherwise uh, you're denying the possibility of everyone arriving at the truth. And as far as you know, religion is concerned. As far as Islam is concerned, the understanding is that, yeah, it is something that everyone has the ability to uh, uh, come across and, and to investigate and to ultimately believe in. And that's the responsibility. That's the amana that humanity has. And Allah holds us accountable for that. Um, so, yeah, we need to have guidelines and principles. And uh, the problem with what a lot of people say uh, in, in the modern period is that, oh, well, when it comes to religious claims, there are no guidelines. Um, it's just a free-for-all. There are no standards. Um, the standards that people claim to have, that's just based on, on power. It's just based on uh, an irrational patriarchy or what have you. And so we don't need to uh, abide by that. And my response to that is to say, well, no, um, even from a rational perspective, if you start from the beginning, you will come to the conclusion that, okay, yes, uh, these great scholars of the past were great. They were scholars. They were um, more intelligent. They were more rational than we are. And I think that's an honest assessment that any person 
can make, even if you're skeptical. And you see you see that amongst uh, some Orientalists. Some Orientalist thinkers will say that, look, we have great respect for the Islamic tradition because look at the level of knowledge and look at the level of depth of thought. Uh, you have like someone like Whale Halak, uh, who's uh, a very prominent academic um, uh, who is Christian. Uh, he's Christian Palestinian. And the way that he talks about Islam uh, and Islamic law, you'd think that he, he's a Muslim because he talks about with such respect and reverence because he's seen like he did, he wasn't a Muslim. He didn't come from a Muslim background, but just because of his scholarly or his academic investigation uh, and, and reading these texts and seeing what was written, he was amazed by that and came to see it as, yeah, these guys know what they're talking about. This is and modernists who are kind of trying to subvert that are kind of uh, am it's, it's amateur hour. Like that's his assessment. Like that's how he'll describe it and not not even be a Muslim. So I think that's that's very telling. Um, but yeah, that's I think um, we need to we definitely need to be committed to investigating the truth. But we should also respect those who have gone before us and who have gone through that process and the more uh, knowledgeable we are, the more able we are to see that um, level of scholarship. And the more ignorant we are, the less likely we are to see uh, the superiority of that uh, level of, of rationality and intellect. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, from my experience working with, you know, hundreds of, of Muslims from, from all backgrounds with different stories, uh, one of the common themes I find with a lot of people is a lack of what I would consider a decent Islamic education. I mean, I'm no, I'm no scholar by any means, but stuff that I, you know, would even consider common sense or, you know, min al-ma'roof, you know, the, what is what is universally known uh, in the Islamic tradition. It's some people that just they don't even know about it, right? Um, so, and on the other hand, I know that most Muslims, Daniel, I mean, let's be honest, they're not going to necessarily be super passionate and academic in their investigation and, and, and take the time to learn, you know, about uh, these different madhahib or learn Arabic and, and translate. I mean, most people aren't going to do that, right? So what would be your advice to the to the everyday Muslim who maybe is affected by, you know, your your message here and wants to do something uh, about their, their path and knowledge, but they don't necessarily have the bandwidth or... Um, you know, they don't know where to start. What, what would be some tips that you would leave uh, our audience who uh, could brush up on what they need to know or what's important for them to know? And that going to Friday Jum'ah prayer is not enough to say, you know, I learn Islam, right, from a 45-minute khutbah every week. Um, that's not necessarily a, a considered an actual Islamic education. Yeah, there are a lot of online resources. Um, so different people need different things. Um, but as far as just understanding the basics and knowing the basics of Islam is something that's fault, right? It's required um, to know what is required of oneself as a Muslim, what is required in terms of practice, what's required in terms of belief, uh, like what are the pillars of belief? Um, people generally know the pillars of Islam, but what are what's entailed by that? Like what are the can like what are the pillars of prayer? What are the conditions to be able to pray, and so on and so forth? Um, so that knowledge is something that's religiously required, um, and it's not like 
something that requires a lifetime of study. It really, like if you boil it down, it's more like a semester, like a typical college semester um, or two that you could learn like all of the necessary, the knowledge that you need to, you're religiously required to learn. And so I would recommend that people start with that um, because ultimately your afterlife depends on it, right? Um, what it would be a catastrophe if, you, you know, we stand before Allah on Yom Qiyamah and it turns out that we haven't been praying properly. Uh, we haven't uh, fasted properly. Um, and these are things that, you know, we hope that Allah will forgive uh, our, our mistakes, those that we, the mistakes that we made in ignorance. But there's no excuse for uh, just persisting in ignorance, right? Um, that's not really an excuse that we can give. So um, I would recommend that people just start with the basics if they have no uh, prior um, exposure to Islamic learning, then you know you don't need to be going into like usul al fiqh. You don't need to be going into some of these advanced discussions on the attributes of Allah. Uh, and that's a mistake that a lot of uh, you know the more enthusiastic young Muslims get into is that they think that okay, well, if I want to be conversant on this debate that's raging uh, in this you know small circle. Then I need to like uh, you know start talking about Ibn Arabi. Uh, attributes of Allah, <laughs> yeah Ibn Arabi, and <laughs> get into the yeah Asma al-Sifat. So that's I, I would say that don't fall into that trap. Just go directly to the basics, um, and there are plenty of online institutes um, that provide that kind of instruction, and you can take a class. Would you recommend any? Would you um, recommend any? Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, Seeker's Path um, is a good uh, source, online resource, and they offer classes. I haven't, I'm not affiliated with them, um, but, you know, I, I know uh, Sheikh Faraz Rabbani uh, just uh, from a long time ago uh, met him in Boston and uh, took, a, a, you know, a couple of workshops with him, but just I followed, you know, the development of the, these courses um, that he's created and this institute. And I, yeah, I'd recommend that, um, but there's others as well. And it, there's no excuse. Like if you have no, with it, like I said, with the internet nowadays, uh, everything is at your fingertips. Um, so there, there are a lot of institutes that provide like instruction that, okay, these are the fundamentals of faith and that's the name of the course. <laughs> and you just, and you, there's no guesswork that's needed. Just you take that, um, uh, and that will, inshallah, uh, provide you with a foundation. And if you want to pursue more, you know, ahlan wa sahlan, if not, then at least like you've done what's required of you religiously. Awesome. Daniel, I had two cups of coffee during our um, deep and uh, enlightening <laughs> discussion. Um, I really appreciate your thoughts and your responses and your passion. And, um, you know, may Allah bless all of us in pursuing the truth and, and what is good and beautiful to the best of our ability. And I'd love to have you back. Uh, I think there's a lot of other topics I'd love to explore with you. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, JazakAllah Khair. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And 
Hopefully everybody learned something. And if you have any questions or comments, please visit coffeewithkareem.com. Um, we do love to hear your feedback, inquiries, suggestions. Um, check out The Muslim Skeptic uh, to learn more about Daniel and his work. He's also pretty active on Facebook and other social media. Uh, so, so give that a, a time, uh, some time as well. Thanks again, Daniel. And Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bye.